I told a um, story a couple weeks ago about feeding my son, my youngest son, spoiled milk. Anybody remember that story? I was hoping you'd forgotten because I'm pretty sure you probably forgot what the sermon was about because nobody after that sermon told me, great job, Eric. They all wanted to give me parenting advice after that sermon. Like, I get it. I shouldn't have fed him that milk. Uh, But that sermon was about what Jesus says in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees. He says, if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside of the cup will be clean as well. And basically what he's saying is, you know, you can focus on a lot of exterior stuff, the stuff that you do or the kind of the way you present yourself in the world. <clears throat> but if you never examine your heart, the, the really rotten stuff is capable of building up there. And so what I want to do today in kind of that same vein is, is to provide you a question to ask of your heart in the spirit of self-examination. And I think that that is what Matthew 21, which is where we're going to be today, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, I think, you know, I'm going to explain a little bit of the text, but ultimately I'm not going to be trying to explain it. I'm going to be trying to ask you the question that I think the text is raising for you. And uh, we'll kind of do that together. So Matthew 21 is where we'll be, and that's where we'll start right now. Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, uh, if if anyone says anything to you, sorry, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! <clears throat> and when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, Well, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. <clears throat> the crowd is swelling. Since Galilee, since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this crowd has been In fact, they follow him throughout the Gospels. And we typically think of the disciples following Jesus, but originally and and throughout Jesus' story, really, there is a crowd of others who also assemble around him. Men and women from Caesarea Philippi, Judea, all across kind of the ancient world who leave their homes and their lives and their families just to be near Jesus. Okay, leave it all to be with him. And now they're heading into the outskirts of the great city of Jerusalem. They have followed him this far. So these are the people, this is the crowd, the word that keeps being used, that is now creating this parade as Jesus enters triumphantly into the great city of kings. You know, they're laying down the palm branches. They're taking their own cloaks off and throwing them on the ground rather than let that donkey step on dirt, which would be an insult to the king. I mean, these are the people who have, not, have been following him but are now, they're turning, they're getting ahead of Jesus so that they can turn and receive him in 
They're welcoming them to his home, to his kingdom, and ultimately into their hearts. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They shout as they nudge one another. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The crowd. Some of us are uneasy in a crowd. Anybody else like that? I've seen enough of those videos of like Black Friday shoppers who are pouring into some storefront to get the latest TV, right, trampling each other, or those, those European soccer games where a, a team will win and their fans will just storm the field, trampling people in their way. I, <clears throat> I went to New York City, which is like one big crowd. I went there in um, high school on a field trip, and I, I, I was so sure that every other person in New York City was a pickpocket that I wore one of those fanny packs you put under your shirt. You know what I'm talking about? I was really concerned with style back then, too, obviously. <laughs> Crowds are unpredictable, make us uneasy. You, don't, you never know what a crowd's going to do. You get a bunch of people together, and they are capable of some crazy things. The Spirit just takes over them, and you can't predict what they'll do. I think that makes us, it makes me at least, a little suspicious of this crowd. All well, its palm branches, all their coats on the road. They seem really friendly now. But five days from now, as the story goes, these are the same people who will shout, crucify him, crucify him. Five days. I um, just finished a book called Five Days at Memorial. Has anybody else read this, Five Days at Memorial? It's about Memorial Hospital in New Orleans, which had, has been, has been there in New Orleans for nearly a century and has weathered many, many, many storms and hurricanes in that time. And so when Hurricane Katrina in 2005 started to bear down on the coast, the doctors and nurses that worked at Memorial, instead of evacuating like many others, went to the hospital because that seemed like the safest place to be. This place has weathered a lot of storms. They've got backup power, and we've got a lot of patients who are too sick or too numerous to evacuate, so they would all go to the hospital. And at first, I mean, they'd done this so many times, it was kind of like a big sleepover uh, they brought coolers of drinks and food, and they shared them, and they, they took turns making rounds on the hospital floors, and they, they stayed up at night joking about relationships and sports and all kinds of things. And then the rain started to fall, and the waters rose, and the streets flooded first, and the water poured into the bottom stories of Memorial, eventually submerging the first couple of stories. The power failed, and then the backup power failed. So think for a second with me about how important power is in a hospital. I mean, everybody in there, patient-wise, is hooked up to some kind of monitor. And many of them are on life-saving kinds of equipment, right? And suddenly, all that's gone. The backup batteries, the, back, the backups to the backup power began to die. The temperature in the hospital rose to 90 degrees, and guards went around busting out windows to try to circulate air inside the hospital, like in five days' time, it turned apocalyptic inside of that hospital. And what started kind of as this fun sleepover with kind of lousy weather on the outside becomes this kind of life and death situation. They turn the chapel in the hospital into a makeshift morgue with this really awful stench coming beneath it. And there's this really haunting scene where the doctors and nurses come together to talk about who to evacuate. Do you evacuate the sickest patients first and try to get them to help? Or do you do them 
last and get the people who are healthiest out first, who stand the best chance. And so, like, these are all great doctors and nurses, and they devolve into a shouting match in this conversation because it's, they're panicked. So on the last day, the fifth day, as evacuations are underway and nearing the end, one doctor and two nurses go to the floor where there's still about 20 of the sickest patients, and they begin to circulate between the patients, administering, without them knowing, lethal doses of morphine. Okay. Euthanasia. They, they kill the sickest patients. And she was a leading doctor in her field. She'd taken this oath to do no harm. And these were some of the best nurses at the hospital who have cared for hundreds of patients who are just clinging to life, doing everything they possibly can to save them. So what changed? Well, five days. Five days had passed. Five hard days. I think time and circumstance can change any of us and can really do a number on a crowd. Time and circumstance. This crowd here, they start shouting Hosanna, and just in five days' time, they're going to say, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, fortunately, I think to myself, I would never fall in with the crowd. I'm, um, I'm independent. I'm like, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You remember in the uh, old claymation version of Rudolph? Anybody seen that? A thousand times, maybe? Yeah. Uh, you remember Hermie, the misfit elf, who doesn't want to make toys, he wants to be a dentist, right? Because, and he doesn't fit in at the North Pole, but turns out he would fit in at Highland. <laughs> if you're a visitor and you have a tooth problem, this is the place you want to be. If you, if you have an emergency, this is, we got like 40, 50 dentists, okay. So Hermie is not accepted though at the North Pole, and he runs off, and he runs into Rudolph, and he says, um, he says, I don't need anybody, I'm independent, and Rudolph says, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, whatever you said, independent. Remember that? And Hermie says, hey, what do you say we both be independent together? <laughs> One commentator said that this crowd has a schizophrenic relationship with Jesus. One minute they love him, the next minute they hate him. One minute they adore him, and the next... They don't know him. I mean, is that unique to this crowd? Was it, only, was it only those people who were capable of this? I think we, we tend to think, yeah, yeah. And, and the reason is the kind of the story that goes around with Jesus' triumphal entry and his crucifixion on Good Friday five days from now is this story of disappointment that Israel was expecting a violent king to come and overthrow Roman rule in kind of a violent, bloody coup and so when Jesus is arrested and he doesn't draw his sword, he is a big disappointment. And they are so disappointed in him that they're ready to kill him. Just like a crowd to do that. Is that, is, is that the way it plays out? Well, yes. I mean, that's, that's probably part of it. But it's not entirely fair to this crowd. Because these are the people who've been following Jesus from the beginning, like I said. Since Galilee, since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So in all that time, they've seen Jesus heal the sick, the blind, the infirm. Uh, they've seen Jesus teach, like he did on the mountainside in the Sermon on the Mount. They've, they've seen Jesus feed a whole bunch of people, 5,000, with just a few loaves and a few fish. But they have not once seen Jesus draw a sword. 
or train an army or plan a rebellion. In fact, they heard Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers. And then Jesus sends his disciples to go get this colt and says, this is to quote Zechariah 9.9, that I'm going to come in riding a donkey. Well, they all know that Zechariah 9.10 is about how the anointed one of God is not going to rule through war, but without war. And he's going to, without war, proclaim peace to all the nations. So is it disappointment? Is that, is that why they turn on him? I think there's got to be a different reason. Maybe that's part of it. I think it has to do with, well, a bad influence. In this case, the bad influence is the city. If you, if you have your Bible, you might, you might notice that there's actually two groups of people in Matthew 21. There is the crowd, that's the word that's used for him, and that's a word that follows Jesus throughout his ministry. So this is a group of people that's been following Jesus. They're now laying those palm branches at his feet. But then around those people, lining the rim, the perimeter of that group, is a group called the city. And they show up in verse 10. And it says the city is shaking. The, the, new, the NIV says stirred, or they were stirred, but that's... That's a bad translation. It's actually the same word that's used to translate how the earth shook when Jesus breathed his last and how the guards who saw Jesus' resurrected body shook when they looked at him. Okay. So the city sees Jesus riding in and they shake with fear. They are afraid. Do you remember in the beginning of the Jesus story, Jesus is born in Bethlehem and the Magi in the east see the star. Right? You remember this? And they go following the star to try to find Jesus. And you probably remember that they are intercepted by King Herod. And the text says that King Herod is disturbed by the news that this king has been born. And then it says, and all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. The whole city, the same city Jesus is now riding into, was shaking then. I mean, imagine for a minute Herod... He's there in his throne room, and he's heard about this king who's been born. He's met these magi, and he sends them to go find the king and report back to him where this baby has been born because we know he wants to kill him. And he's just waiting for the magi to come back, and hours pass, and then days pass, and weeks pass, and months pass, and they don't come. I mean, can you imagine him just getting angry at her? and angrier, and servants come in, and he overturns trays, and he sends them out, and he says, find the boy, find the boy, right? And finally, he's so mad, he is so afraid that he kills every boy in Bethlehem who's under two years old. I mean, how mad do you have to be to do that? What? Why is he so scared of Jesus? Why do you think he's so afraid? And that's a good question to ask because apparently the city is just as afraid. Everybody else looking on is just as afraid of Jesus. Uh, I've told you before that about my Wednesday morning Bible studies at Hope Works that I do with Ron Wade out there. And um, this week's this is Shelby County Corrections Center, and um, this week we were studying. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we are every week, but we got to the passage about adultery and lust and what Jesus has to say about sex and purity. But we started the class with a meditation on Matthew 21, Jesus' triumphal entry as king into Jerusalem. We prayed over that together. 
And then we turn back to where we needed to pick up with what Jesus has to say about sex. So a conversation with 35 guys in prison about sex is is like the most hilarious conversation you can possibly have. (laughs) It was, I mean, some of the the best questions I've ever heard. I can't repeat them to you. Uh, But needless to say, it was probably a little different than the sex conversation HYG is having right now, like a little bit different. And um, so one guy, for example, uh, I'm talking about purity and marriage and those kinds of things, and one guy stops me and says, wait, 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 Jesus was married, right? I say, no, he wasn't married. But I mean, he slept with people, right? No, he didn't. Is he for real? <laughs> like, they, they couldn't believe that. Yeah, couldn't believe that. Um, this one, but there was this one kind of haunting moment there at the end where this young man, he's probably 19, I mean, young, young. And he's sitting there on the front row. And he says, I just hand, I'm like, yeah. He says, but what if I don't believe in marriage? And I get it. Because he doesn't know his dad. Of the 35 guys in there, only three of them knew their dad. Three out of 35. Never knew his dad. Every relationship he had seen around him at one point or another had failed. People had split apart. So, I mean, it was just self-protection, right? Like, it's better to not make a commitment to anybody because you'll be disappointed. He gets it. And so he says, you know, what if I don't, what if I just don't believe in marriage? And the guys around him kind of nod their heads because they get it too. And so, like, that's this really hard moment. And so I told him, you know, like, I get what you're, where you're coming from. But Jesus did believe in marriage, So the question isn't, what if I don't believe in it? The question is, is Jesus my king? Is he my king? And he nodded his head. And I think that maybe that's why Herod and the city are so afraid. Because they actually know the right question. They actually know that if Jesus is riding into town as king, that he's got expectations of them, that he believes things for them that they do not believe for themselves, that he's going to ask more from them as their king and not less. And Herod already thinks there's not enough power to go around and there's not enough authority and recognition to go around, not, not enough to share with Rome. Nevertheless, this little child and the city thinks, goodness, this is one more king that we're going to have to give more of our time to, more of our resources to, more of our Loyalty and hearts, too. There's just, not, there's just not enough to go around. And so they're shaken. They're shaken. And I think maybe that's why some from the crowd join the city in five days' time. So they drop their branches and kind of disperse into the city because the city's rubbed off on them. I mean, it's hard to be around people who are afraid for long without getting afraid yourself, right? They're shaken too at the thought that someone, this king, might have expectations for them that they don't have for themselves. So it does seem easier to just get rid of him than deal with that. Crucify him, they say in five days. So let me end by asking, where where are you standing in this scene, with which 
group are you standing right now? As Jesus is marching into Jerusalem as king, as he heads towards his crucifixion and resurrection this weekend, where are you standing? I suppose you're probably thinking, well, neither group seems like a good one to stand with. You know, I, uh, you might be standing with the city, for example, and you, you realize, well, you're, you're just really not sure about someone who's got expectations for you that you don't have for yourself, and you, and you think, well, well, goodness, who has the time for a king? I mean, who, who wants to align themselves with someone who believes things for me I don't believe for myself? Ugh, don't have the time for that. Or maybe you're with the crowd there, and you're, you're singing the songs right now, and you're, you're throwing the palm branches at the feet of Jesus, but you know that circumstances could change just like that. Only takes a few days, the floodwaters start to rise, and where would you be standing then? Would you head for higher ground, you think? I don't know. But I think you need to know. Because that's the question the text is asking of you. It's there in the prophecy that Jesus fulfills. It says, see, your king comes to you. So when you're reading your English Bible, what we often don't see is that a lot of the yous are plural. So most of the New Testament, it would actually be saying like y'all and yous guys if we, were, if we were reading most of the yous. But these ones here, your and you, your king comes to you, is as singular as it gets. Your king comes to you. I think there is this temptation to drift back into the crowd, to kind of get lost in the city, but your king is coming to you. So what will you do? Where are you standing? Are you going to turn on him? Are you going to run? Are you going to shake? Are you going to sing the songs and lay the palm branches and then take off when circumstances change? Or... Or will you follow him? Will you actually let him inside your heart? Follow him even if it means to the cross? Because there's a group of people who did. You know, a group who found a third way, a third place to be. And I wonder if you'll be there with them. Because after all, you're independent. And maybe we can be independent together. I think a king is worth that when you say so. Let's stand and sing together. We will glorify the King of Kings. We will glorify